This is case 53 of the Shoyoloku. <clears throat> Wang Po's drag slurpers. The introduction. Facing the situation, you do not see a Buddha. Great enlightenment has no teacher. Human emotions are eliminated by the soul that regulates heaven and earth. Holy understanding is forgotten in the activity that catches tigers and buffaloes. But tell me, whose strategy is this? The main case. Wang Po said to the assembly, You people are all slurpers of dregs. If you travel like this, where will you have today? Do you know that in all the land of China, there are no Zen teachers? At that point, a monk came forward and said, What about those who guide followers and lead groups in various places? Wang Po said, I do not say that there is no Zen, just that there are no Zen teachers. The verse. Paths divide, threads are dyed, too much trouble. Leaves in clusters, flowers in rows, ruins the ancestors. Suddenly wielding and guiding the handle of creation. Vessels of water and clouds are on the potter's wheel. Clearing away tangles and chips, shaving of down. The mark balance, the jeweler's mirror, the jade ruler, the gold knife. Old Wang Po can perceive even an autumn hair. Cutting off the spring wind, he does not allow exaltation. So this morning, I was talking briefly about the fact that we're here. We showed up after making all the logistical arrangements, the emotional investment, financial investment, anticipation, planning. All that, so we can spend a few days here, right? leaving everything behind for a little while. And it takes a lot of planning. It's not that simple. Work, families, friends, leaving the home behind. Not go through to make this happen. And now we're here for a few hours, settling in, creating the circumstances. Circumstances for possible transformation. But creating the circumstances and devoting time to practice by itself will not do much. So we need to examine how we practice, 
What do we do on the cushion? What do we do while in motion? How do we function? How is that different than being at home? Other than the fact that you sit for many hours, not talk. Is that all? Is that all we're supposed to do? Just shut up? What else can we do? You know, and, and coming here, in a way, can be, diff can be seen as different than maybe sitting at a home sangha, dojo. This place was designed and built for that. Ancestor after ancestor. And it's in the walls. And what does it mean? For us, we, we have to do our best to show gratitude and to show gratitude for all that, for all the work that happened up to now and all the work that is happening now by the residents that keep it alive, keep cooking for us, taking care of the place, maintenance. And to appreciate it is not just to say thank you. It's to actually match the purpose of this place, to match it with bringing the purpose of practice, is actually to practice. Right? It was built for you to realize, build and maintain for one purpose. So we have to ask, how are we doing that? To realize through sitting, through moving, through eating together, walking around the lake, cleaning the place. Every bit of it is practice. or at least meant to be practiced. So gratitude, gratitude to the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Not as a cliché that we may have created out of it, but true gratitude to just being to being surrounded by Dharma. Gratitude for the support of the Sangha. So, to examine that, to examine whether or not, to examine whether or not we are practicing correctly, right? what does it mean to practice correctly? How do we know? You know, to, to know how to practice correctly can be divided to two fronts. First, knowing how to practice correctly during zazen, which, you know, when we first teach zazen, right, basic instructions, we focus solely on that to make sure that we are all on the same page. 
right? Posture, breath, working with thoughts. Essential. So there is that. And there's also knowing how to practice correctly in motion. Everyday life, what is called everyday life. And essentially, these two are actually inseparable, but for the sake of practical understanding, we can look at them as two different perspectives of studying the Dharma, or bringing the Dharma to life. One deals with cultivation of deep observation while sitting still. And the other also deals with the deep cultivation of observation while on the go, moment by moment. And in both aspects, we learn to maintain an uninterrupted connection with the nurturing and pulsating vitality of what we call, or what is called the unborn, the source, ground level. where all appearances are realized, are recognized as inseparable. What could be more great than actually spending time together, learning to move together as one body? Learning to function together while working individually or what we need to work on. Sharing the fundamental, feeling it, sensing it. And in terms of approach, you know, one of the aspects that tie these two perspectives of practice, practicing the Dharma, is the intention we raise. Right? So to, to raise a deep sense of gratitude can actually be an amazing fuel to deepening. Right? If we truly appreciate, then we can truly practice. Right? And also maybe regulate it better because we understand. We're here to, to go deep. We're here to not entertain thoughts or get lost in thoughts or try to plan what we'll do next week. I think often what happens is that we work on getting through the experience and then after the experience we go back home, we look back and there is a sense of loss lost time, lost opportunity. It's actually very common. So this, this moment now is the opportunity to not create regrets. Which means to truly practice. To regulate it, as the Buddha said. It's kind of like a thermostat. The practice is a thermostat. Right? If we practice correctly, we maintain the groove. 
When things become too loose, we tighten it up. When we become too rigid, we loosen it up a little bit. Finding that neither here nor there, staying on the edge of the soul, not falling to either direction. So to work through the challenges with this regulating the right thought, as the Buddha said. Being rooted, being grounded, using the stability of your zazen, the stability of from the waist down, and the flexibility and movement from the waist up, Flowing with, not resisting, not rejecting. But for that we have to develop strong, rooted, heaviness here. This practice is actually very physical and I think sometimes we, we forget. We get so caught up in thoughts. We forget how physical it is how essential the physicality of it is in going deep. It's like in Aikido, I teach Aikido too, and in Aikido we, we develop strong groundedness while on the go, in motion. Yet the upper part of the body is loose, relaxed, flowing, able to deal with what comes. Able because of the heaviness and groundedness that we cultivate. Same with zazen. Same with our practice. Always maintaining that link, that connection to earth, to ground. Sensing the vitality. Trusting that this vitality is not something that will be given. Also, trusting that only you, only you can feel that. Nobody can do it for you. Right? Which brings it to, right back to practicing correctly. Right? To practice correctly is to begin from a ground level understanding that we are not here with the hand out expecting something. Somebody, the teacher or somebody, will just put it in the hand. There it is. I paid my dues, I showed up. Now you are here to give it to me, whoever you are. It's not happening. We walk on our own two feet. Sit on this butt. Experience what we experience. Practicing collectively yet experiencing completely 
alone. And that's the good news. I think that's what keeps many of us practicing for many years. That trust goes deeper and deeper and actually follows you wherever you go. So I think it's imperative to clarify that we all clarify that we are here in, on this mountain, in this zendo, to fully engage the Dharma with every ounce of our being and every passing moment. It doesn't end when the Jikido hits the bell. It doesn't begin with a bow. It does not manifest in one activity more than another. Same ground, all times. So to engage the Dharma fully and to do so through the power we were born with, not what is called worldly power or gained power, The power we forgot, we have. That's why we put the hand out, begging, thinking somebody will, at some point, notice me, notice how hard I practice, how diligent I am, and will reward me for that. With what? If anybody ever gives you something with this kind of mindset or that promise, turn it down immediately. Walk away. Be very suspicious. So we may say we're here to engage the Dharma. But here's a question. How much are we willing to put on the line to engage the Dharma? How far are we willing to go are we ready to cut off the umbilical cord that ties us to false sense of reality false sense of self because it does feel this way it does feel like you are cutting off the link to nourishment. And in a way, we are depriving ourselves, right, of conversations, of doing whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, of everything we survive on of everything our society survives on. So we take a few days and we check out of that, check into something else, at least in appearance, something else. So why are we here?
the question. Do we know? Do we understand? Vimala Kirti, who was considered one of the most deeply realized lay person during the time of the Buddha, <coughs> became ill, was in bed. And the Buddha sent many of his followers to visit him. And it turned out that uh, many of them came by and a lot of them, I think maybe 50 or 60, had to squeeze into a very small room. So at that time, Shariputra came by also. And he realized that uh, there's no place to sit. Right? this small room. And he thought to himself, all these bodhisattvas and major disciples all gathered together, but where will they sit? Vimalakirti, knowing exactly what was in his mind, said, Shariputra, did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or for the sake of a seat? Do you just want a place to sit? And Shariputra said, I came for the Dharma, not for the seat. Ah, Shariputra, said Vimalakirti, a seeker of the Dharma doesn't concern himself even about life or limb, much less about a seat. A seeker of the Dharma seeks nothing in the way of form, perception, conception, volition, or consciousness. He seeks nothing in the way of sense realms or sense media. A seeker of the Dharma does not seek it through recognition of suffering, does not seek it through renunciation of attachments, does not seek it through realization of how to end attachments, or through practice of the way. Why? Because the Dharma has nothing to do with idle theorizing. I think he's seeing into our minds too. Our own expectations. And we show up. We want to be comfortable. We want to have a nice cushion, of course. Yeah, it's good, it's important. But now what? What does it mean to come for the sake of the Dharma? And he kept going. He said, the Dharma is called unstained. But if one is stained with the idea of the Dharma or of Nirvana, then one is stained with attachment. So the thought of, I'm here for the Dharma, is actually, or can remove us away from the Dharma. The thought of seeking something else, someone else, is already separating us from the source, from the unborn. Creates the illusion of separateness. But the thing with illusion is that it really doesn't matter. We call it illusion. If we trust and believe it, it actually becomes reality. So we can't just label it as illusion. Deep down, we trust it. Becomes reality. Bodhidharma said, if you don't understand 
that everything that is real becomes false, and everything that is false becomes real. That's how we live. And he says, the Dharma has no goal or activity. But if one activity, if one, sorry, if one actively pursues the Dharma, one is pursuing a goal. And this is not seeking the Dharma. The Dharma knows no picking and choosing. But if one picks and chooses the Dharma, this is picking and choosing. Even the Dharma. This is what I want to do. This is what I think is going to transport me. The Dharma is independent of place. But if one fixes on an idea of a place, this is fixation with place, not seeking of the Dharma. The Dharma is called formless. If one tries to know it through form, this is seeking form, not seeking the Dharma. Dharma is not something that can be seen, heard, perceived, or understood. If one tries to see, hear, perceive, and understand it, this is trying to see, hear, perceive, and understand the Dharma, not seeking the Dharma. Therefore, Shariputra, if one would be a seeker of the Dharma, one must not seek it in anything at all. So, how can we use that to practice correctly? We come with an idea of awakening. But an idea of awakening is an idea of awakening, as he says. So when the idea of awakening or the idea of searching for the Dharma is put aside, all the other ideas are put aside for a little while, what is left? What else is there? Other than what I want and what I don't want, what else is there? And just staying curious, open, fully engaged. What arises? Now we think that if we don't know how to proceed, we're stuck, right? You know, if I don't know what is the goal, how do I know? How do I know if I'm moving towards or away from the dawn? This is exactly what the great Zhaozhu experienced. Same dilemma. So he asked his teacher, Nanchuan, what is the way? Nanchuan said, the ordinary mind is the way. Zhaozhu said, should I direct myself towards it or not? Nanchuan said, if you try to turn towards it, you go against it. Again, the idea of is the obstacle. So Zhaozhu asked, if I do not try to turn toward it, how can I know that this is the way? 
And Nanjuan answered, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion, not knowing is blank consciousness. So the question, how do I know? Comes out of confusion. How do I know? How do I know that I don't know? Maybe that's a better question. What is the assumption or the assumptions that I'm relying on when I ask such questions? What does it mean to be confused? To not have the answers, right? Makes sense. What if it's okay to not have the answers? Is that confusion? What if we find a way to be at peace with not having the answers, not knowing which direction this is going? What if we just take this energy that we waste and devote it to how it manifests rather than what is it? We're trying to figure out what is it. How does it manifest? How does it move? Blinking the eyes? Sneezing, walking, how else? Is that foreign? Going towards, going against. The introduction to this koan begins with saying, facing the situation, you do not see a Buddha. You also don't see confusion. Where do we see confusion? Where does the attention go for us to actually feel confused? And what happens if something, all of a sudden this loud noise or something grabs your attention? At that moment, what happens to confusion? What happens to the questions? For a split second, everything drops away. Everything. And we become one, totally one with the sound, the situation. If you walk behind somebody in Kenya, all of a sudden the person loses balance. Until that moment, you may feel stuck, confused, stupid, not worthy, or whatever. At that moment, the hands reach out to help. How is it possible? How is facing the situation how can it work miracle 
erases everything, then it comes back. So what happens? Who is that? Who is it that is able to take care of the situation at the moment it arises without hesitation? So facing a situation, you do not see a Buddha. Great enlightenment has no teacher. We don't need to be taught that. Human emotions are eliminated by the soul that regulates heaven and earth. The soul that regulates heaven and earth. The soul that cuts through delusion, the manjushri soul. The soul that regulates your practice. That's all it is. It's just your practice. But again, practicing correctly. That practice. Which means all the time, here in the city, suburb, all the time, full time, not on weekends and Tuesdays. Continuously. And then it is asking us at the end, whose strategy is this? Who's devising this? Is it a strategy? Are we here to devise a great plan and then execute it? Is that what we're here to do? To learn how to match, to have an answer for every situation. Now going back to Aikido practice, you actually, what you learn over time is to forget more than to learn. You learn to get out of your own way. There is a teacher, of course there is a teacher, but the teacher is not giving anything. All the teacher does is creating the circumstances for you, for us, to do the work we need to do. To little by little learn to trust. Learn to not get in the way. Learn to merge with the flow. And it flows. So this, this koan, Wangpo's drag slurpers, is actually a famous koan in both Zen traditions, Rinzai and Soto appears in the Blue Cliff Record, and then the Book of Equanimity, Shoyoroku, as in this case. And Wangpo lived in the ninth century China, was a successor of Bai Zhang, and the teacher of Linji, Rinza. Apparently he was a person of great stature, 
had a big protrusion in the center of his forehead from years of repeated prostration, hitting the ground with his forehead over and over and over again. With a callus. So when, when he first met his teacher, Pai Zheng, Pai Zheng asked him, so grand and imposing, where have you come from? Huang Po said, so grand and imposing, I've come from south of the mountains. Bai Jiang said, so grand and imposing, what did you come for? Huang Po said, so grand and imposing, not for anything else. That should be. That is for us. This is how we need to show up. Not for anything else. That's all. Why are you here? Not for anything else. Not for anything else is opening everything up. Because what's going on? I don't know. Let's see. Let me see what I came here for. Oh, we're doing cleaning right now. Let's clean. Okay, well, here's why I'm here. Oh, we're sitting. Okay, I'm here to sit. We eat? Yeah, I'm here to eat. Shut up. Okay, I'm here. To, I'm good for that. I can shut up. No problem. And on and on and on. This is why we're here. Not for anything else. So grand and imposing. Isn't it? You walked around the lake today. Isn't it grand and imposing? Isn't it magnificent? Do we need other reasons to be here? Is there another reason? Swang Po then bowed and said, from high antiquity, what is the teaching of this order? Bai Chang remained silent. Wang Po said, Do not allow the descendants to be cut off. Bai Chang then said, It may be said that you are a person. Bai Chang then arose and returned to his quarters, the abbot quarters. Wang Po followed him there and said, I've come with a special purpose. Pai Chang said, If that's really so, then hereafter you will not disappoint me. Now the special purpose is another way to say not for anything else. There are different ways to say that. But thereafter you will not disappoint me what he's really talking about is what we chanted a couple hours ago. We will not disappoint those who came before us. We will not disappoint those who brought the materials to build this amazing place. We will not disappoint those who care for it with so much love. That's what we practice. That's how Zen stays alive. 
not for any other reason. So on this first encounter, Pai Chang and Wang Po recognized each other in a way that transcends time, words, location, people. The mutual recognition of what is beyond, what is true. And also mutual recognition of the process of deepening. Which means, yeah, there is a teacher and there is a student. And there is refinement. Knowing that the teacher and the student are not different. Each one can take a position. I think I mentioned before in one, one talk that uh, in, in our lineage, when you receive Dharma transmission, it's a complex ceremony, and in that ceremony there are different kinds of bows between the teacher and the student, and the zagu, the bowing mat, is laid different ways. First, the, the teacher's zagu overlaps the student's zagu to show teacher and student, teacher above student. Then it's reversed. The student's zagu goes on top and overlaps the teacher's zagu. And then the last one, both are pulled aside, away, and they're on the same level. And it's all true. And it's all real. And it's all on the same ground. However we create this above that, doesn't really matter because it's on the same ground. And that's what they recognized in each other. A seeker, a student, a teacher, still. Seeing eye to eye. First meeting. So in this case, that one day all the monks gathered together, right, from Wang Pu and waited for him to impart the Dharma, right? That was before this case, or before the, the words in this case are there, right? First there is this gathering, they're sitting there waiting. So he looks at them and says, you're all sitting here in rows before me, but I have nothing to teach you. Go away. He then waved his stick to make them go away, but nobody left. And at this point, the koan begins. So when he saw that the monks remained seated, he looked at them and said, you're all slurpers of dregs. If you travel this way, where will you have today? And then he says, do you know that the old land of China, there are no Zen teachers? The monk came forward, asked in a way, well, then who are you? Aren't you a teacher? A Zen teacher. And then he says, well, I'm not saying there's no Zen. I'm just saying there are no teachers. And Hakuin commented on this koan saying, this statement of Wang Po is poison in the water. Whoever drinks it dies. You got to love Hakuin's comments. 
doesn't get clearer than that. Whoever drinks it dies. And he said, I misunderstood it for 20 years, so do not take it lightly. He, Hakuin, says, I misunderstood this statement for 20 years. And he was a very diligent practitioner. If you read some of his biography, you know. <clears throat> he said, do not take it lightly. So there are no Zen teachers. How do we understand that? Well, I'm good to go. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody's help. I always knew, my mother always told me, I'm very special. <laughs> right, so there you go. I just got the confirmation for that in the book. So I don't need a teacher. It's one interpretation. What is to not? What is no teacher? No student? He said, do not take it lightly. This saying is hard to penetrate. It's, this, it's in the same mold as he who has a habit-ridden consciousness. in the same mold. And Wangpo knows that. That's why he's saying it. It's kind of like overloading a circuit, right? Sometimes you got to put a lot there to break the whole circuit. So you overload it. Whoever drinks it dies. So Hakuin's warning is like a grandmotherly word of advice. Because he knows very well how the habitual consciousness pounces on words and concepts. How quickly we build structures with them. So one post statement goes directly to the heart of the matter. But we have to give it time to penetrate. We can't just jump on to whatever appears in our mind. Oh, I know what that's about. Let it sink. Take it into your zazen. Sit with it. No Zen teachers. What is that? No teachers, no students, no ground, no earth, no sky, no trees. We chant that regularly, right? No form, no sensation, perception, reaction, consciousness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No color, sound, smell, touch, thing. No ignorance, no end to ignorance, no old age and death, and no end to old age and death. No suffering, no cause or end to suffering. No path, no wisdom, no gain, no gain. Thus, Bodhisattva live Prajna Paramita. Thus, it's the only important word here. No, 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 no. Then, Bodhisattva lead Prajna Paramita. Now, what seems to be a total negation is actually a complete and true affirmation of all things 
on another occasion, Wang Po made a fist with his hand and said, all the teachers under the heaven and earth are all right here. If I let out a string of words about it, it will just confuse you. If I don't say a single phrase, you'll never get rid of it. So a monk came forward and asked, well, what happens if you let out a string of words? Huang Po said, confusion. And the monk said, well, if you don't let out a single phrase and it cannot be gotten rid of, then what? Huang Po said, everywhere. So what do we do? How do we learn? How do we know what to do with no Zen teachers and yet still have a teacher and work with a teacher? And what happens to the teacher-student relationship if we don't understand no teacher and no student. I think we know what happens. I think every lineage has a story to tell about what happens when we do not understand no teacher and no student. Very dangerous. So this statement maybe should be written at the, on the wall of every Sangha. Mm -hmm. So nobody gets any other ideas about what we are doing here. We have to be clear about that. The verse says, paths divide, threads are dyed, too much trouble. Right, we chant in the Sandokai, the way has no northern or southern ancestors. Zen cannot be given from another or owned by anyone. There are no divisions. We divide that which is united. And because we do that, we create complications. And because we do that, we create a teacher that does not know what it means to not be a teacher, and a student that does not know what it means to not be a student. It's all our own creations. The dyed threads. This is in reference to how we paint reality with pretty words, concepts. But all these colors only cover the inherent whiteness or purity of the thread. We don't see that the thread is white. We don't see that the teacher is not a teacher. And the footnote says, when the things you are concerned with are few, your troubles are also few. It's pretty good, isn't it? Right? Not for anything else. Simple, easy, not for anything else. 
But then the mind comes and says, well, I can do that at home. I don't have to take a few days off, pay money, deal with pain. Who is talking? I mentioned earlier this morning, Mala is, uh, is waiting for this opportunity. Feels very threatened. Knows exactly what to say, how to say it, how to appear. To make you feel convinced, maybe at times, that you are wasting your time here. Leaves in clusters, flowers in rows, ruins the ancestors. And the footnote says, when you know many people, there is much judgment of right and wrong. Right and wrong come out of creating a gap. That's how you can know many people. You only have to know one. Only one. And in that, who is judging who? And if you know one, you know all. Suddenly wielding and the guiding handle of creation, vessels of water and clouds are on the same are on the potter's wheel. Clearing away tangles and chips, shaving of down, the mug balance, the jeweler's mirror, the jade ruler, gold knife, old one paw can perceive even an autumn hair, cutting off the spring wind, he does not allow exaltation. These lines come from, a Chinese, from Chinese stories and some symbolic items, but they primarily point at Huang Po's amazing ability to guide his students directly to the souls. And he's able to measure our ability perfectly. And he's mirroring the finest jewel. He's doing it, but do we see? Do we hear it in the words? Do we see the power of this coin? Can we embody that? John C.H. Wu wrote about Wang Po. He said that he so the ultimate reality as mind, the one mind. This mind is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. It is the fountain of true wisdom. And he said, we have this living wisdom within us, but our hearts run after external things, and our minds are busy weaving hair-splitting distinctions and rigid concepts to serve as a cocoon for our little ego. Interesting language to say that, very true. Consequently, our inner fountain of wisdom is stopped up. As Huang Po puts it, if the pursuers of the Tao, the way, do not awaken to this fundamental mind, 
they are apt to create a mind over and above the mind, seek Buddha outside themselves, and remain attached to forms and practices in the cultivation of their spiritual life. All these are erroneous ways which do not lead to supreme enlightenment. Adoration and devotion to all the Buddhas in the universe are nothing in comparison with following of a single mindless man of, the, of Tao, person of Tao. In other words, if you want to get at the fundamental mind within us, we must first rid ourselves of the clever conceit of our petty minds, or at least, at least, set no store for them. For they only distract us from the living source of true wisdom. Thus, Huang Po's doctrine of universal mind is the same as, is at the same time a doctrine of mindlessness. If we think about mindfulness, quite the opposite, mindlessness. It is through mindlessness that we can return to the mind. So it's clear, right? The words are clear, they cut through. But how do we practice it? How do we truly take it to our zazen, the next period? Right? We sit. We get into the right posture. We don't move. And in that, thoughts arise and vanish. Comparisons show up. Judgments. Lots of judgments. Lots of voices none of which is actually covering the fundamental. None of it. How could it? It all comes down to where we place the attention. The mind is going to, the thinking mind, mother, is going to try to create, constantly to create, to weave something. Fine. No problem. Let it. Let it. But choose to place the attention on this. Why are you here? Not for any other reason. That's plenty. And the one thing is it's a lot more interesting than what the mind is weaving and creating. So that's the task. Do that. Do that with every ounce of your energy.